Good morning, church. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. I know that this is a very disappointing day for celebrating Easter the way we are accustomed to celebrating it, but that is no less true. Christ is risen and he is risen indeed. You know, for the first 20 years of my ministry, I felt the burden to, to provide historic proofs for the historic uh, reality of Jesus' resurrection. But in more recent years, I've found a different challenge. With 70% of Americans uh, saying that they believe that Jesus did rise from the dead, the, the new challenge is not so much proving the historical reality of Jesus' bodily resurrection. The challenge is demonstrating its relevance. You know, we are not altogether different in the way we feel from the way those first Christians felt on Easter morning. They were also isolated. They were, they were closed in behind uh, locked doors because of fear. Their dear friend and leader was dead, so they thought. It was a sad day for them. There's a sense in which we are celebrating Easter more realistically than we have in a long time. And it's the, it's the, it's the perfect spot for us to be in, to be surprised by the power of the resurrection gospel, to come into the midst of fear, to come into the midst of disappointment and demonstrate the relevance of that historical event. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, verses one through 12. Luke 24, verses one through 12. It's the third book in, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the account of the resurrection according to Luke, the physician. Luke 24, verse one, listen, this is the very word of God. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe the women. 
But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, would you send that same spirit who enabled you to rise from the dead? Would that same spirit give life to these words and give life to us, to some of us for the very first time, because there's some listening who have never embraced you as Lord and Savior. Raise them from the deadness of their unbelief. There are others of us whose faith wanes today. Please blow fresh wind into our, into our faith. Make us alive again. Cause us to believe the good news despite what we see around us. We pray you would prove it to be relevant in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I read an opinion piece by John Kasich, who was a 2016 presidential candidate. He was a former mayor, former governor of Ohio. John Kasich is a believer. And he, he spoke very vulnerably in this opinion piece. He, he said that, that when he when he heard the news of the virus and how quickly it was spreading, he, he went on a long walk, a six-mile walk, and, and he, he experienced a disconnect, he said. On the one hand, he, he believed certainly that Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. He believed in, in life after death. He believed in heaven. He believed that there was coming a day when when God would put all things right. And on the other hand, he was anxious and fearful in the present, in the present. He shared that with his pastor. He said, now, pastor, I've, I feel like there's a, this, this giant disconnect between my head and my heart. Pastor gave him some, some perspective on that, reminding him this is a fallen world. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And then as, as Kasich grappled with it, he, he remembered how he felt after his parents were killed by a drunk driver back in 1987. He said he not only doubted his faith, he doubted the very existence of God. How could a good God allow such a thing to happen? But then he, he said he, he realized by the help of his pastor, by reflecting on the, on the truth of Scripture, that the Christian faith is not just a coping mechanism, but the Christian faith is true because Christ did rise from the dead, because Christ is real. And when Christ lives in your heart, he said in his article, when Christ lives in your heart, you realize that there is a God a sovereign Lord, a king of the whole universe who cares for you. 
And when you realize that the Lord Christ cares for you, you can endure through the most difficult times. Now, that's a layman. We might quibble with some of the theological precision of the things he wrote in that article, but what I want you to hear from our brother is that that there was an honest man who who was tempted to to think that while Jesus resurrection from the dead was a historical reality and has no present relevance and when he stopped to think when he stopped to to put himself at the feet of Jesus he was freshly awakened to the fact that Jesus alone has good news. He has the best news. And he specifically, we see in this passage, by his resurrection, has news for those who are good news, for those who are frightened. He has good news for those who are hopeless. And he has good news for those who feel like they are irrelevant. Look with me in verses one through five for that first point that that the that the resurrection of Christ is relevant for today because he provides the resurrection of Christ provides courage for the frightened courage for the frightened now these these women these these women who were such dear friends and faithful disciples of Jesus Christ these women were the first to the tomb. And, and they were going there because Jesus' body had to be taken off of the cross in such a such a rush, because the the Sabbath day was was uh, coming on, and and they couldn't properly prepare his body. All they had time to do was to get it off the cross and get it into into the tomb provided by Joseph of Arimathea, the the rich man who who provided a private tomb for him. And then that tomb was covered with a heavy stone. Other gospel writers tell us as they were on their way to the tomb with their spices for anointing his body, they were worried about how they were going to get that that stone away. And so what they encountered was perplexing. Something was not right. The stone was rolled away for one. And then when when they went into the tomb, the body wasn't there. Now their first thought was not, he has risen. He is risen indeed. That thought wouldn't have crossed their minds. Oh yes, they saw him. They saw him raise other people from the dead. He saw them raise Lazarus and and uh, Jairus' daughter and 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 others. But uh, the widow of Nain's son. But but they didn't think about him. His raising himself from the dead. That would have been their first thought. Their first thought would have been, who stole the body? They were perplexed. But then the angels show up. And the angels come from a holy God, from the throne of heaven. And they they tell the women the, the good news. They, they first say, why are you looking for the dead among the living? In other words, tombs are not a place where, it's not a place where, uh, where uh, living people hang out. Jesus is alive. And the women were frightened. They were frightened. We are frightened. 
We're afraid of this virus we can't see. We're afraid of what it's going to do to our economy. We're afraid of what it's going to do to our jobs, what it's going to do to the jobs of our employees. We're afraid of what it's going to do to our family, what it's going to do to the health of those whose whose health is already compromised. We're afraid of all kinds of things. We're afraid of this creation. This is the point at which you expect me to say, but we must not be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm not going to tell you that right away. These, these women, as faithful as they were as disciples, they had reason to be afraid because they were standing in the presence of angels who had come from the holy presence of God. You know, the Bible tells, tells us that, that we should be we should be afraid if if we have been neglecting our faith. If we just haven't had time for Christ. If we've been thinking that that we're going to make it into heaven by our decency or we can make it through life by our resourcefulness. If if we've just if we have been if we've failed to give thanks to the one who gives us life and breath and every other good thing. If we've been living in that, if not outright obvious rebellion, secret ingratitude, self-indulgence, we have every reason to be afraid. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says in Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and wickedness of man. For since the the creation, God has made himself known. We have suppressed the truth by our unrighteousness. He has made himself known. He's revealed in the creation, it says, his, his invisible attributes, particularly his eternal power and divine nature, All of those things have been clearly seen because he has made them to be seen so that men are without excuse. Jesus says earlier in the the Gospel of Luke, you you shouldn't be afraid of those forces that merely kill the body. You should be afraid of the one who throws both body and soul into hell. Now, that's not typically the news that we expect to hear on Easter. But nothing is typical about this Easter. And it could be that God's waking you up, waking us up, through this fear is the, is the greatest, kindest thing he could do for us. You know, Francis Scott Key uh, wrote a hymn. And there is a line in that hymn, Praise the grace whose threats alarmed thee. Rouse thee from thy fatal ease. Praise the grace whose promise warmed thee. Praise the grace that whispered peace. Even working fear in us, if it drives us to Jesus, is a gift of grace. 
But once you have been driven to the realization that Jesus is Lord, that he must be first in your life, he is first and essential to the universe, that he reigns supremely over all things. This is the unique title that for Luke, anyway. This is the first time he mentions the Lord Jesus. He reserves this title until his resurrection. By his resurrection, he's proven to be the Lord, the judge, the king, the one with whom we have to do. And if he has awakened you and brought you to himself and is bringing you closer and in greater dependence upon himself, then this is a grace. And you must then recognize him to be not just the Lord, but the Lord Jesus. Jesus. And, and, and the promise comes to us that because he is Jesus, because he was man and God, he made the perfect substitution for us. He took our sins with him into the grave. And because his life justified the sins that he had taken on from us, he was, he was, he, he rose again. And as a result, the writer of Hebrews says that he had to share flesh and blood with us because that's what we are, because we're flesh and blood. And he did so in order to defeat him who holds the power of death, that is the devil and to set free those who all their lives had been kept captive by the fear of death, the slavery of fear. He freed us by that resurrection. Now, I want to remind you of that incredible children's message that we heard last week from Peggy Stevens, who showed us that a courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to step forward, to go forward, even to take risks while we are afraid. That's what the gospel does for us. We are going to be afraid. I am afraid. I wake up every morning, brothers and sisters, with nearly paralyzing anxiety. But it is the hope of the gospel that gives me courage to take the next step, to read my Bible, to pray, to sing, to eat breakfast, to engage with my family, to minister to you, to do the next thing. Oh, brothers and sisters, take yourself to the cross. Let Jesus give you fresh courage against fear. It's relevant, isn't it? It's also relevant, this good news of the resurrection, it's also relevant because it gives hope. It gives hope to those who feel lost. And one of my favorite books by Walker Percy is Lost in the Cosmos, where he makes he sort of makes fun of, of all of these these systems and coping mechanisms we come up with to make our way through this world when the only way we can truly be comforted in this world, in this vast creation, is to, to rest in the, in the hope that 
the Lord Jesus Christ is in control of everything. Now look at the text again, verses six and seven. These are a couple of amazing sentences. He is not here, but has risen, the angels say. And then watch this closely. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and on the third day rise. The women would have found this unbelievable. They went and told the disciples and the disciples found it unbelievable. In fact, Luke uses an interesting expression later in this chapter in verse 41. He says that that even when they saw Jesus, it was they disbelieved for joy. It was too good to be true. So the women are 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 standing in the tomb. They've heard he is not here, he has risen, he's not he's not dead, he is alive. They're in utter shock. And then and then the angels say, I want you to remember two things. I want you to remember that he he told you some things back in Galilee. And why does he say Galilee? It was it was important. It was important to 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 remember that the staging ground for Jesus' attack on the kingdom of the devil was not Jerusalem, the political capital. It was in Galilee, a a despised place. Remember what what Nathaniel said about Jesus, can any good thing come out of Galilee? Galilee was a despised place, and so that's the place where Jesus chose to conduct the most important aspects of his ministry and to gather his disciples for the final instructions before he he went to the cross and and to gather them as well right before he ascended galilee was making it clear that his was not a political kingdom his his beachhead his gathering spot his launching pad was galilee not jerusalem remember that he said and then remember this He told you, the angels say, he told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. Now that little word must is is the translation of an even smaller word, a three-letter word in Greek, dei. D-E-I, we transliterate it, dei. One of my professors used to call it the article of divine necessity, meaning it it conveys that this thing had to happen because God from all eternity decreed that it would happen. The Son of Man died on the cross and was raised to life, not because things went awry, not because his plan failed, It happened that way because God said it would happen that way. God determined it would happen that way. Here's the simple point. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is on the throne. He is ruling and reigning until he brings all things to pass. His kingdom is superior to any political kingdom. And he reigns supremely over all history 
so that it is going to come to a point just as God decreed. And that point we learn from the book of Ephesians is the praise of his glorious grace. When I was a very young pastor, I was uh, conducting a prayer meeting in our church. It was the Wednesday night prayer meeting. And uh, on that Wednesday night or sometime before, I'm fuzzy on the history, but we had just we had just declared war on Iraq. We'd fired some Patriot missiles into Iraq and and we were we were inevitably heading toward war. Well, I was I was terrified. I barely could rec- to, could remember Vietnam and my brother going there and the, the people in my church were terrified too. That night, we had a visitor to our prayer meeting. He was a former professor at Covenant Seminary. He'd retired. Dr. R. Laird Harris, one of the most brilliant New Testament scholars uh, there had been, and and yet a very humble, a very pious man, one who had not made a name for himself because he had dedicated himself exclusively to helping his students become pastors. I saw Dr. Harris. He was passing through and just visiting, and I saw Dr. Harris in the in the in the sanctuary, and I asked him if he would be willing to lead us in a devotion before our prayer. He was very handy for me because I had no idea what I was going to say to these people that evening to provide comfort. Dr. Harris came forward, and he he read uh, from two places in Scripture. He read from, uh, in, in Revelation, he turned us to the book of Revelation, chapter four, and he said, uh, uh, read with me early verses. I'm gonna read all of them to you. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the spirit and behold a a, a throne in heaven. It was a throne standing in heaven with one seated on that throne. Then he turned us to chapter seven. And he read this. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And concluded, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Then Dr. Harris said this, 
This is true now. Jesus Christ, the risen one, is seated upon the throne. And I do not know what is going to happen in the future, and you do not know what is going to happen in the future, and we don't have to. What we do know is that at the end, this will still be true. Jesus Christ will be seated on the throne. And then, after defeating all of his enemies, even death, in putting away all wars and every pestilence, he will turn and wipe away every tear from our eyes. It's relevant because it's hope for the lost, those who feel lost in this cosmos. You're not lost, you're found and you're being guided by a good shepherd and everything is occurring as it must according to his good plan. Finally, I want you to notice the good news, the relevant news of dignity for the irrelevant. Verses eight through 12 uh, uh, show us these, these, these women announce that these women are the very first witnesses in history of the resurrected Christ. Luke is sometimes called the gospel of women because he gives careful attention to Jesus' love for the women who are his friends and his disciples. Dorothy Sayers famously said, is it any surprise that the women were last at the cross and first at the tomb? It was because they knew he loved them so much and dignified them. Mark also announces that that. Um, that the women were the first there. And, and one commentator on, on the Gospel of Mark said, Mark was courageous in announcing that women were the first witnesses because women in the first century were, were disregarded and they were not thought to be reliable witnesses in court. But Christianity, turning everything up on its head, turns societal norms upside down too and says, and, and God in his sovereignty said, I want these women to be the first to see my risen son, and I want them to be the first to give testimony to it. They, they stayed there at the, at the cross long after the other disciples were afraid and ran away. They followed him to the tomb and they saw where he was buried. They were the first there the next day without even knowing how they were going to roll the stone away. And they were the first to witness the resurrection and the first to announce it. And the apostles validated and affirmed and gave secondary witness to what the women initially announced. It's a beautiful truth for any of us who have been told that we are irrelevant, that we don't matter, you're too young, you're too old. You're, you're a woman, you're a man. You're the wrong color. You're the wrong socioeconomic status. This is, these are the things that arrogant people say. The people who have no right to say it. When Jesus Christ, the King, the mediator through whom each of us was ultimately made, 
He is the only one who has the right to tell us whether we're relevant or irrelevant. And Jesus came saying to every one of us made in the image of God, we are important. He's the one who hung out with, with lepers and, and tax collectors and, and women and children and Gentiles and publicans and sinners. He's the one who says to you today, no matter what the world says about you, how it dismisses you, you matter because he died for you. Now, are you accepting that? Have you bowed the knee to him to say, I accept you. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. He will, despite who tells you you're irrelevant, he will, he will transform you with the dignity he provides. Even unbelievers recognize this. Paul Vane, expert in early church history, identifies himself as an unbeliever. And yet he said in his book about the first uh, four centuries of the church, he said that what made Christianity so successful was its teaching this, the infinite mercy of a God passionate about the fate of the human race Indeed, about the fate of each and every individual soul, including mine and yours. What does the resurrection have to do with that? Well, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that by the resurrection, he has made us sons of God. And he doesn't change the the name for women. He calls women sons too, so as to convey in that first century context that though you have not been treated as significant or important by anybody else, though you could never be the heir of your, of your father's estate because you're not a firstborn son, he says in God's economy, in God's kingdom, everyone is a firstborn. Everyone is an heir. Everyone is a firstborn son conformed to the Son of God. And, and if he has made you a son, you're not a slave. You're, you're no longer a, a, a subject to, to fear, to, to leading to slavery, leading to fear again. But you have been given a spirit of adoption by which you cry out, Abba, Father. Another atheist Philosopher recognized the same thing. His name's Luke Ferry. And he said the, the radical thing, the, the, the unique thing about Christianity was that it taught not only that every person is, is dignified and that Jesus Christ had come to, 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 to rescue individuals, but he but Luke Ferry recognizes what we what some of us never recognize that Jesus Christ's resurrection was for the sake of raising our individual bodies. The reason he, he died for our sins, the reason he, he rose again to life was not just for himself, but he rose again so that we might someday come to life, that he might bring life to our individual bodies at the great day. 
relevant. Relevant news, good news for those who feel themselves to be irrelevant. I recently saw the place where J.K. Rowling wrote her Harry Potter series. A little cafe, two little cafes, Nicholson's in the Elephant Room. And she said that she was very poor at the time, practically homeless and she was typing away on this on this this series and her little baby was in a pumpkin seat there at her feet and overwhelmed with love for that child she wrote these fantasies I, she wrote obviously from a from a common grace mindset but it's what love does to you In a word, what this message is about is the love of God in Christ. That's why it's relevant, the resurrection of Christ, because he was raised to life out of love for you, and he still loves you. You may not know the story of Harry Potter. It's basically this, that he, his parents were killed, died early. His his mother was, was killed by the evil Voldemort, the most wicked being in the universe. He was trying to kill Harry, but his mother stood in the way. She was killed. And he he suffered a scar as a result of it. He didn't understand what it was until later it was interpreted. At the end of the the end of the series, Harry is also killed. But because he is killed in the process of, of, of protecting someone else who is going to be killed, a friend who is going to be killed, but he imitated the same sacrifice that his mother made for him, that he was given the right to choose to return to life. He returned to life and he killed Voldemort. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? One of Harry's professors explained to him the source of his scar. Your mother died to save you, Harry. If there's one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. He didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign. To have been loved so deeply even though the person who loved us is gone, will give us some protection forever. It is in your very skin. On Good Friday, we grieved the scars our Lord Jesus took to save us from our sins. But today, today we rejoice in the work of those scars and his resurrection to save us from not only our sins, but all of our enemies, including fright, including hopelessness, including irrelevance. Oh, brothers and sisters, believe it afresh. 
friends, believe it for the first time because he is risen. He is risen indeed. And he has been raised to life for you. Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.